All right, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. I am here with uh, founder and CEO of BlockFi, Zach Prince. And BlockFi is one of the fast growing, maybe leaders in this crypto lending space. We've been talking about uh, recently about the decentralized finance, talking about velocity of money, unlocking capital, things like that. And they're right in the space. And we're gonna dig in, ask him the questions that you should be asking if you could. And so anyway, uh, welcome to the show, Zach. Hey, Mark, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you know, we had some conversations before and, uh, and you were kind of telling me a little bit how you got here with crypto and into this company. And there's really some intersections with what I talk about a lot. So give us a little bit of background on who you are and, and how you got here. Uh, yeah, sure. So you know, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, I was telling you right before we hit record that I'm a big fan of the content that you're putting out there. Um, my background is that uh, I've always worked in venture-backed technology companies. And, and most recently, prior to starting BlockFi, I was in the online lending sector um, at one company that aggregated data for institutional investors across all of these different online lending platforms. And a lot of these platforms offered an option for retail participation on the platform. Uh, so uh, you could invest in consumer loans or commercial real estate loans or invoice receivables. Um, and I was also tracking other parts of FinTech like robo-advisors and, and things of that nature. And all my friends were asking me about it, you know, all the time, basically. And so I started a little blog on the side in 2014, and that's what led me to cryptocurrency. Um, bought my first Bitcoin at the end of 2014, uh, found Ethereum um, early 2016. And then on the velocity of money topic, I was actually in early 2017 um, planning on buying a property in Texas uh, that, that was going to be a, a rental property. And obviously at that point in time, cryptocurrency prices had gone up a fair amount and I was feeling really proud of myself uh, for having made that investment. Yeah. And I was curious what the bank would think uh, about those assets and whether they would um, <clears throat> prescribe any value to them in terms of their underwriting decision. And so I included Bitcoin and Ether as line items on my financial statement that I submitted to a bank that I was applying for a loan for <laughs> to buy yeah. this property. Um, you know, not only did they say we think of these as a big fat zero in terms of how much they're worth, but they also said, uh, well, we're going to have to put you through some extra compliance checks now. Uh, we think you might be involved in some illicit activity, um, that type of stuff, because yeah. there was a lot less awareness about uh, these types of assets back then than there is now. Um, and that was when I had a light bulb moment for BlockFi. And, and basically the idea was that cryptocurrency was going to continue to be a growing asset class uh, I started believing tremendously in some of the you know value propositions that these assets have in terms of privacy, in terms of global access to uh, you know venture capital like returns or just you know novel assets that uh, could appreciate a lot in value, and eventually decided to start a company around that idea in the summer of 2017, and that's and that's BlockFi. Um, we first started as as a platform where you could borrow money supported by the value that you had in cryptocurrency because so kind of checking that box that traditional banks don't check and we've expanded you know both the products and services that we offer since then and also our vision for what we think the company can become over time now you came from uh, like you said fintech financial technology um, and you were working in the peer-to-peer -peer lending space um, and did you transition straight from that into BlockFi uh, yes. So okay. I worked at I worked at two different companies in that space. One, Orchard, where we were a data aggregator and, and technology provider to 
institutional investors that were buying loans or lending directly to all of the major platforms, uh, lending clubs, SoFi, Prosper, Funding Circle, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. I think we had around uh, 200 different online lenders in our database and on our system. And then our institutional clients were banks, large credit funds, uh, large family offices, uh, all different types of institutional capital that were that were buying loans from those places. Yeah. And then I also spent about two years at a at a consumer lender called Zibby that uh, finances large ticket retail purchases at the point of sale for um, individuals who have low FICO scores or no FICO score because they're they're not a U.S. citizen, uh, that type of thing. And then started BlockFi. Do you think this disrupts the peer to peer lending space? I think that. Um, there are, you know, learnings from peer-to-peer -peer lending that can be applied to uh, building businesses um, in the cryptocurrency lending space. Uh, but I think it's pretty different. So a lot of the things that, you know, happened in, in the peer-to-peer -peer lending world were based on credit scores or financing different assets like real estate or invoices or uh, equipment. Um, so I actually think that structurally it's more comparable to uh, like like brokerage lending. So you know margin lending or liquidity access lines from the you know public equities uh, world than it is analogous to peer to peer lending structurally. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm not super familiar with peer to peer lending markets as I haven't been an active user. Um, I'm aware of it. I've done research on it. I know how big it is. And uh, even in other countries, like in China, it got really big and got kind of ahead of itself. Um, yeah. But when you have companies that are kind of centrally controlling that, are you really doing peer to peer, like person to person, and someone's in the middle uh, managing that? Or is it really kind of not so much, it's more like portfolio lending or something? <clears throat> uh, I think it depends a little bit on the implementation uh, from the platform. So uh, for example, like on Lending Club, which is the largest peer-to-peer -peer lending platform in, in the U.S., um, currently only about 10% of the loans that Lending Club makes are financed peer-to-peer, -peer, meaning there's a retail individual on the other end who's providing the capital that goes towards uh, making that loan. And it's completely centralized in the sense that Lending Club is always making the loan from a regulatory perspective. Uh, lending Club is controlling the decision about who gets approved for a loan and at what price. Um, and then there's other types of, you know, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, lending implementations um, that are different variations on that, on that same, on that same theme. Yeah. I was just curious how this model kind of fits because obviously with BlackFi I could loan or borrow, uh, but it's not peer-to-peer, -peer, right? So I'm kind of going in with the company and then the company's kind of acting. So I guess it's similar to what the P2P industry is doing. Uh, but the good piece of it, which is, you know, I, I constantly state, you know, how the importance of being an investor because we need those returns. And with P2P or what you guys are doing, you're really giving people the option to, to loan, to make money, right, above, above average interest. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the exciting thing about peer-to-peer -peer lending and about, um, you know, one of BlockFi's products that, that enables you to earn interest on your crypto holdings is that it's a channel to make more money that didn't necessarily exist before. Um, the, the things that people got excited about from the peer-to-peer -peer lending sector were the opportunities for portfolio diversification and income generation uh, and, and the ability to access those um, even with you know, a $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 investment, and that simply just didn't exist uh, before that industry came around.
Yeah. Now, BlockFi kind of has two different products in a sense, right? Where either one, I could borrow money against my crypto holdings, or two, I could just park them and receive like above average, above market interest or something like that. Is that right? <clears throat> that's, that's exactly right. Um, so if you have Bitcoin or Ether, you can open up a BlockFi account and earn interest uh, the same way that you earn interest in a savings account from a bank. Um, except without uh, like FDIC insurance and some of those like uh, banking protections that exist from the federal government. Right. Um, but you earn interest in the asset that you've deposited. The interest is paid every month. And once the interest is paid to you, it becomes part of your balance and therefore you're earning compound interest uh, on the balances that you hold with BlockFi. At the same time, you have the ability to borrow US dollars against the value of that cryptocurrency that you have with BlockFi at rates as low as 4.5% per year. Um, and when we do that, uh, those loans are structured as interest only loans. Uh, so if you, you know, borrow $10,000 at 4.5% at a year, your monthly payment would be you know, $450 divided by 12. Uh, and then you can pay back the principal either at the end of that term or at a later date. And the reason I mentioned that structure is because for certain types of uh, investing, specifically cash flow type investing and some of the velocity of money arbitrage that you talk about in one of your other videos where you're borrowing it for and investing in something that earns 10, that interest only repayment structure can be really valuable in terms of getting incremental leverage from the cash flow that you're producing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those of you on the podcast that maybe haven't watched the videos, we're talking about the concept of velocity of money where $1 can do multiple jobs. So I can put it into one account um, and pull it back out while it's still parked there earning interest and then put it to another job. Uh, so for example, I could take my crypto, I could take my Bitcoin um, that has gone up 150% this year um, and I could borrow against it, I'm paying 4% annually or 4.5% annually, but hopefully making 100% annually. And then I can redeploy that money into now another asset. So for example, a piece of real estate, like, like Zach, you mentioned in Texas, I could put into a piece of real estate. Now that hopefully I'm making seven, eight, 10% on that. So now that $1 is doing multiple jobs. So catching you guys up on the velocity of money. Now, uh, I love that concept. Uh, I always say Warren Buffett said, uh, right. If, if we don't learn how to make money when we sleep, we'll work till the day that we die. So it's all about putting that money to work. And hodling is makes perfect sense because of the app, because crypto is all about uh, investing into a technology that needs to be developed. It's going to take years. So we want to hodl, but being able to unlock that value um, is important. So you have those two different products. Who are the people that would want either one of those products? And, and who do you typically see coming in? Is that like institutions? Is that retail people? Like, what do you see? Yeah, great question. So uh, we think of our core client as being uh, retail. Um, so it's, it's primarily individuals. We do have some uh, small corporates that are, that are also clients. Uh, so for example, a company that did an ICO and holds some crypto on their balance sheet or, uh, mining operations. Um, we, we also have his clients, but it, the platform is really built for retail and we think of retail as being uh, our, our core customer. There are things that we do in the institutional market to facilitate the products that we're delivering to our core retail client. So for example, when we're lending dollars at 4.5%, um, that capital is coming from an institutional 
lending facility that that uh, that BlockFi has. Um, when we're paying interest on Bitcoin or Ether deposits, uh, the interest is generated by BlockFi lending Bitcoin or Ether to institutional borrowers. But we think of those functions as being things that enable the delivery of the products to our, to our core retail customer. And we have customers primarily in the U.S. today. So about 75% of our client base is, uh, is here in the United States and 25% uh, outside the U.S. Now, um, is, is, that, is it because that you're more retail focused? I think um, on your terms, do you pay like less interest on larger balances, right? So like smaller accounts get more and larger accounts get less. Is that right? <clears throat> that's, that's correct. It doesn't seem um, right. It seems like I should be getting more for larger balances. Yeah. Uh, and, in, and in traditional markets, um, you absolutely do. Um, the, the differences about the cryptocurrency market right now that, that drive that are that uh, the market to borrow cryptocurrency is nascent and undeveloped and there's not a risk-free rate of return that exists on Bitcoin the same way that there is on a fiat currency. Um, so when we initially launched the uh, product that enables you to earn interest publicly in March, um, we saw an influx of deposits. And in general right now, if you just looked at the entire market of cryptocurrency and said, okay, how many people are interested in earning interest and how many are interested in borrowing, you would have an imbalance there where there's a lot more interest in earning the interest than there is interest in borrowing in that asset, at least today, because the market's still nascent. So the reason we implemented that structure is that we wanted to be able to offer an attractive interest rate to as many unique customers as, as possible um, and put a little bit of a gating factor on how attractive this was to institutions or uh, to particularly large holders of cryptocurrency. Um, but the limits right now are, are still pretty high from a retail perspective. So yeah. from, for example, on Bitcoin, uh, you earn a 6% interest rate on a deposit of up to 25 Bitcoin, which at current prices is right around uh, just under a quarter million US dollars equivalent. And on Ether, it's 100 Ether, which uh, is um, around 25,000 USD equivalent. Yeah, so you kind of want to, you're more retail focused because you're a little bit more diversified. I see you have like uh, no limits on when I can deposit or withdraw. So I could imagine a huge withdrawal could really affect you. So maybe by being more retail, keeping that amounts down, you're more diversified against that? Uh, that's, that's, a great, that's a great point, and it's another factor of consideration from a risk management perspective. Yeah. Um, we benefit from diversification both in terms of our depositor base and in terms of our borrowing base. Um, the other factor is that we plan on launching additional products in the future. So from a um, you know, corporate business development perspective at BlockFi, we benefit from having more users on the platform because when we launch things in the future like you know the ability to earn interest on your bitcoin in dollars or a crypto rewards credit card having more people on our platform that could also potentially use those subsequent products is is really valuable to us yeah makes sense makes sense i want to get into that a little bit more um, later but i want to ask one other question so again back on uh, uh, back onto the velocity of money having one dollar do multiple jobs I talk about like a whole life insurance vehicle where I could make 8% borrow against it for or a house where I could borrow back out at four, but I'm making 10. So there's that arbitrage spread. Now I notice you, you pay the difference of what I can borrow against or what I can earn. There's about a 2%, two, whatever 2% spread. Um, is there an arbitrage play or no, I have to choose one or the other. There's, there's 
not as clear cut of an arbitrage play as in the examples that you describe. And the primary reason is that um, it's two different currencies. So we've got Bitcoin and dollars in the, in the BlockFi example versus just dollars in the example of, you know, a house where you're making other investments. Um, and the other reason is that when you're borrowing dollars from BlockFi, the collateral that you're using to secure those dollars that you're borrowing is not still earning interest. Um, but you know, th there are, you know, arbitrage opportunities that are, that are created on the fact that, you know, we're paying interest on crypto and on the fact that you can get access to USD from a velocity of money perspective. Got it. Okay, good. Now, uh, we'll get into some, uh, tough questions. Uh, Great. The, st the stuff that, the stuff that people should hopefully be asking and, and, uh, like you said, you saw some of my videos and, and, uh, I wanted to kind of, uh, talk about. Um, I, I talked about the lending aspect and I said, Hey, you know, obviously there's risk. Everything in life has risk, right? If I do something, there's risk. If I don't do something, there's risk. Um, and so what are, um, I guess some of the risks that people would have obviously would be giving their money up. Now, as you mentioned, giving it to a bank, there's FDIC insurance because they're holding my deposits. Now there are risks. The risks are very low, which is why the interest rate is super low. Um, obviously now I'm going to get a higher interest rate return, but I would imagine there's higher risk. Um, can you talk about some of those that maybe people should be aware of and what you do to kind of de-risk that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, at a high level, you can bucket the risks into, into three separate categories. So there's uh, fraud risk, security risk, and, and credit risk. Um, the, the, the fraud risk is, uh, you know, anyone who's followed crypto for a while might be familiar with like the BitConnect, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, for, for better or worse, there've been some, um, some shady characters in the cryptocurrency industry. There've been some scams and there've been, you know, quite a few of those scams that had to do with this concept of like earn 1% interest per day, that type of thing. If it sounds um, too good to be true, it probably is, right? If it sounds too good to be true, it absolutely is. Uh, we're definitely, you know, uh, I, I can, I can guarantee that there's a 0% risk that, um, that, that we are in that bucket. Uh, and, you know, the, the way that you can verify that is by simply looking at the types of investors and backers that we have for the company, um, groups like Fidelity and Galaxy Digital and, and uh, other noteworthy kind of venture institutional type investors who, you know, obviously put us through a ton of diligence before, before they make any of those investments. Um, second risk, uh, security risk. Um, we mitigate the security risk largely via a partnership with Gemini. Um, so the other thing you have to be cognizant of in the cryptocurrency industry is, is uh, not having the private keys, you know, hacked or, or stolen from yourself or uh, the uh, entity that you're storing them with. Um, Gemini is our, is our custodial partner. They have insurance on all the assets that are held on their platform. They were the first custodian to, to get a SOC 2 audit, which is like a bank level security um, audit and they have a perfect track record with, with zero losses in terms of custodying billions of dollars of crypto for many years now. Um, the last risk is probably the one that, that we could do a whole separate, you know, 30 minute or an hour long, uh, show on if we wanted to really get into the weeds of it, but it's that credit risk part. That's the big one. And there, and there's two components to the credit risk. So there's, um, the counterparty risk that you're taking to BlockFi. So, you know, is BlockFi well capitalized enough uh, to continue operating its business? Does BlockFi have the proper safeguards and, and separations of capital between our funds and our, and our customers' funds? Um, 
that's one part of the risk. Uh, and, and the other part of the credit risk is the pool of borrowers that we're lending the crypto to. Um, who are they? How well capitalized are they? How much collateral are they posting uh, to BlockFi? Um, and so just to touch on a couple quick details on both of those points, and then we can, we can go deeper in it or, or switch to another topic, whatever you prefer. Um, in terms of the BlockFi side, so we have a number of operational and financial uh, rails in place at the company um, that would raise flags or prevent any one person from taking actions that would blur the line between our customers' funds uh, and our own corporate you know, equity capital. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of uh, who the, the pool of borrowers that we're lending to are, uh, we have a team um, that's, that's headed up by a former managing director of prime brokerage at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, who uh, lent for you know, 15 plus years there and, and never lost a penny, including throughout 2008 and 2009. Um, and we onboard every borrower through both a counterparty credit risk framework and then a required collateralization level. Um, so for example, uh, if a borrower of cryptocurrency doesn't have a minimum net worth of, as a general rule, 50 million, um, then we would always require over collateralization, meaning we would lend them a million dollars of Bitcoin, but they give us $1.25 million uh, in USD or stable coin. And then in that scenario where we're over collateralized with dollars, we're using the same risk management system that's been operational for the USD lending side uh, of, our, of our product stack since January of 2018. And we've, uh, you know, in either product never had a late payment or a loss or uh, any legal issues. So our performance has, uh, has been perfect to date. Um, yeah, I'll pause it, but I'm happy to drill in deeper. So um, it sounds like the big risk on that would be if the market were to crash so fast that you couldn't cover the collateral, that could be a problem. Now, you mentioned earlier that you really want to focus on the main coins that have a lot of liquidity. Uh, we did see recently with Poloniex, they had a problem, right, where one of their uh, coins had no liquidity and they lost a lot of money. And then they basically socialized those losses and made everyone take like a 16% haircut. Um, but you don't really have that because you're working on more highly collateral or high, high liquidity coins. But I guess that would be one risk, right? Um, that's absolutely one risk. We actually uh, evaluated uh, lending on, on Poloniex as, as a potential channel for us uh, and, and couldn't get comfortable with some of the assets that they had on there. So fortunately we, we got that one right. Um, and from a capital stack perspective right now, uh, our, our equity and any employee contributions into the interest account are junior to our customers funds. Um, so, so as it stands today, uh, we would, you know, we would kind of close the doors at BlockFi before we socialized any losses into our, our pool of customer funds that are, that are in the interest account. So if, for example, you had done the Poloniex deal, you had taken a 16% haircut, you're saying BlockFi would be ready to take that loss as opposed to trying to push it into everybody else. Correct. We would have eaten it. And uh, to give you another data point, which would be helpful. So like, even if we were lending on Poloniex, um, that exposure would be maximum uh, 5% of our total lending activity. 
so the haircut relative to BlockFi's pool of capital that it's lending in aggregate would be, uh, you know, 5% times 16%. I can't do that math in my head. Um, and then, and then, yes, we would, we would, we would take that loss out of, uh, out of our equity capital rather than socialize it. Got it. Now, um, I'm guessing the funds are commingled, so there's really no separation there. Is that correct? Correct. Everything's uh, commingled once it hits Gemini. The way the system works is that we create a unique deposit address that maps one-to-one with each one of our customers. We monitor the blockchain uh, to record activity into any one customer's account. But when crypto is sent to a customer's unique address, it's instantly swept into a master custodial account with Gemini and then into cold storage per their uh, you know, treasury management uh, function. Is there some sort of like uh, UCC filing or something that shows that I have something there in case creditors were to come in and shut down or something like that? Ooh, there's not, um, there's not a UCC filing when you deposit into the interest account, no. Um, but you did say that uh, that that all the lenders are senior to the other debt. So in the event of some sort of a liquidation, the senior would get the money first, I guess, right? Correct. Okay. Well, that's at least that's at least good. Um, but good stuff there. Now, those are the tough questions. I appreciate you for going into that. Uh, like you said, we could probably dig in deeper, but I think that's that's pretty good. Um, I'm curious about the future of BlockFi. So I've seen other platforms like Nexo, for example, right, returning profits back to token holders. Um, Celsius has a token. You guys don't have a token. Um, let's maybe talk about the future. Is there some sort of profit sharing in the, down the road or token or something like that? Um, uh, <laughs> highly unlikely that, that we'll ever have a token. Uh, if, we, if we did do something similar to that, it would be more like um, – you know, offering access to a subsequent equity uh, funding round on a uh, equity crowdfunding platform like a bank to the future, like what Kraken just did, uh, or or some of the others like Seed Invest, which is uh, owned by Circle. Um, so, you know, no token. We think that that value should just be passed through to, you know, offering the best rates. Um, what you'll see from us in terms of platform development uh, is – continued improvement on the on the products that we already have in terms of the features and functionality and visualizations. Um, and then we plan on launching two additional products over the next year. Um, the first is the ability to kind of do asset conversion on our platform. So for example, uh, selecting the asset that you want to earn your interest in regardless of what asset you've deposited. So for example, you've deposited Bitcoin, but you want to earn interest every month in dollars or uh, the other way around. Um, and also just being able to uh, manage a targeted portfolio allocation within our platform versus having to move assets off of our platform to uh, you know, exchange them for other assets somewhere else. And then in the first half of next year, we expect to launch a Bitcoin rewards credit card where you know just swap airline miles or normal cash back on a credit card out for 1.5% cash back uh, in, in Bitcoin based on how much uh, you're spending on the card. So that's kind of our, you know, immediate roadmap that, uh, that we're focused on. Very cool. Very cool. Um, what do you think about, um, regulations and how that, uh, puts risk for the company, uh, BlockFi risk, not 
you know, creditor risk, as you said. That, so that's a fourth one that we didn't cover, but regulatory risk. So um, for those that have been living under a rock the last 24 hours, uh, Facebook coin announced they're coming out and now several big governments are saying, no, you're not, right? Um, <laughs> right, or something like that. Yeah. What, what do you think about that and how, what kind of risk does that pose for you? Yeah, so I think um, I think we've taken a very different approach, uh, for example, than than uh, than others like Celsius and Nexo, who you mentioned. Um, you know, we came from the fintech world, started the company in the summer of 2017, in the middle of the ICO boom, and and one of the reasons, and there were multiple, but one of the reasons why we elected to not finance the the company's operations by conducting a token sale was we felt that that would put a level of um, regulatory uncertainty and regulatory risk on on the company that wasn't necessarily value add to uh, our users um, so you know we the other thing that we did is we've had a KYC and AML policy from day one we have uh, gotten licenses to uh, operate the lending activities that we're doing in, in the states that we need them from day one which you know we've got some battle scars from that from back in 2017 like explaining explaining why making someone a loan secured by the value in their Bitcoin wasn't illegal to, you know, the state regulators of California, for example. Um, but we hold lending licenses. We update them. Uh, we're sharing information with, uh, with the necessary regulators. Um, so we sleep pretty, pretty well at night uh, in terms of the regulatory risk, frankly. Um, but I think for, for the sector overall... Uh, yeah, let's talk about the sector overall. Yeah, for the sector overall... Um, I feel like Bitcoin's in a great spot. Uh, I feel like e Ethereum's in a great spot, uh, at least in the U.S. market. Maybe in other markets, um, especially markets that have weaker currencies, uh, they could be they could be a bit more um, at risk. Um, and I think governments are really not going to like Libra Coin. Um, and and the reason is that like with with Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're really they're really not, at least today, trying to go at the core of what a government currency is going after. Um, or at least they're not successful enough at it yet for, for a major government to think that it's a risk to them. Right. Uh, whereas LibraCoin is basically designed the same way as like the, the special drawing rights of the IMF, where it's like if something were to happen, the IMF would have the ability to take the basket of currencies that it's holding and issue a new currency. And that's basically what Facebook is trying to do. And Facebook is already on somewhat shaky ground because of the privacy and data stuff. Um, so I, I think that one's going to get, I think it's going to have a lot of uh, governmental challenges. It's obviously not going to be decentralized from day one, which is another, uh, which is another uh, problem that it faces. But I think that for Bitcoin, um, it's going to be on a great path. I think good things are going to continue to happen in the U.S. and other uh, major markets. I think there's going to be this snowball effect that that has continued even throughout the bear market of uh, institutional adoption, um, which ultimately, you know, at some point in the future will lead to uh, government adoption in some way, shape, or form. And you'll have a central bank, a small one initially, but you'll have a central bank putting Bitcoin on its balance sheet, and then that's going to create this massive snowball. So, you know, I'm really bullish on on Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it's it's interesting uh, just to see the shakeup in, in that, and hopefully, what I hope is that with the government's wanting to crack down on LibraCoin, it doesn't 
um, some of that regulatory stuff doesn't spill over into bigger crypto. Uh, for that, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, so, you know, but it's just, just good to have that conversation. But I think, you know, what, what I believe is that volatility <laughs> is like the difference of perception and reality. So in 2017, everybody perceived Bitcoin and crypto to be way higher than it really was. The reality was it, the technology wasn't there. And then, then of course, it crashed and now perception is here. But, but the reality is it's gotten way better, right? Now we have yeah. more scaling solutions and more adoption. And I think... Um, and, and then I think that that perception needs to come back up, which we'll see that price come up, which it already is. And I think I think options like what BlockFi is providing is is going to help that um, because it doesn't it, it allows people an option without having to sell, and so they can stay in, they can hodl, and um, ultimately that that should be good for the ecosystem, right? Yeah, and I mean I can tell you just uh, you know firsthand since we've launched the ability to to earn six percent interest on your Bitcoin, we've had people come to us who don't own Bitcoin yet. And, and they'll say like, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how Bitcoin works, but I know that I'm not earning 6% interest yeah. on, you know, on, on other assets that I hold. So um, can I buy some through you? And we, right now we say, well, actually you should go to, you know, one of these other places to buy it and then, and then send it over to us. Um, but it's a core, you know, it's a core part of functionality and it, it might not be for everyone. It might not meet everyone's risk tolerance. Um, but it's it's definitely a natural evolution of the ecosystem. Uh, I certainly love it. I was like the first. I was the first customer of earning interest on my Bitcoin, and a lot of the products that we're building are based on things that uh, you know I and others here on our on our team want to use. So we're we're excited about it. Yeah. Well, like you said when you started, right? Your research kind of lines up with what I talk about, and it's about uh, having one dollar do multiple jobs. And uh, this is the perfect way to do that. So um, I think it, I think it's great for the ecosystem overall. Um, yeah, pleasure to have you on. A really good conversation. I love that we kind of share some uh, investment ideas, kind of the same um, there, and, and that's really cool. Um, so where would people go to learn more about uh, BlockFi or to follow you? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, our website is BlockFi.com. Uh, you can you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm BlockFi Zach, um, and you know. If you want to shoot me an email, my email is zac at blockfi.com. We have chat on our website. We've got a phone number on our website. Uh, we've got a bunch of really smart people on the team that are happy to take questions or uh, just you know, hear people's feedback. So don't hesitate to reach out. So you're not hard to find? Not hard to find. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, thanks for joining in. Thanks for having me. I hope to meet you in person next week, Mark.